Hey, so good to be with you guys this morning. I'm Pete, one of the pastors here, and we are going to wrap up our series in the book of Philippians this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I would invite you to get that out and open up to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to do the last little chunk of this uh, letter written a long, long time ago by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And um, this morning, it's kind of some of his closing remarks, some of the final things that he wants to say uh, to the people, but also, there's even more going, going on than that. What we're going to learn this morning in this last passage is some information that kind of explains the tone of the entire letter and uh, helps us make sense of, of the book as a whole. So I want to read um, just the last chunk, starting in verse 10 through the end, and, uh, and then we'll spend some time trying to hear what God might say to us this morning through his word. Philippians four ten. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We have so much to celebrate in who you are and what you've done for us, in the life that you've given us in you, and the wonderful invitation of the gospel to be adopted into your family, to be enlisted into your movement of restoration in this world. So we thank you. We celebrate you. We rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, this morning. For you are with us. You are good. You have done everything necessary to save us so that we can be here together as your people, being made whole and healed. Trust you with this moment. Holy Spirit, would you move amongst us? Would you enlighten our hearts? Would you allow us to hear your voice through these words that were penned so many years ago? 
that we may continue to be formed into the image of your son, that this city would get a chance to see who you are and what you're like as a result of our life together in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you know one thing about the book of Philippians, it's typically this, that this is Paul's happiest letter, that the theme of joy and rejoicing shows up over and over again throughout the entire four chapters. And Paul has exhorted the church in Philippi repeatedly to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice and to be glad. And he himself, in his writing, there's this tone of joyfulness, of thankfulness, a warm-heartedness towards uh, the people in this church. And what we find out here in just the last paragraph or so of the book is something that clues us in a little bit more specifically on why Paul is feeling so particularly joyful. Now, if you know the context of when and where Paul wrote this book, you would be surprised that this would be his happiest letter. Where's he writing from? He's writing from prison. Okay, so he's not in a happy place. He hasn't arrived in any sense of the word. He's in a very lonely place. And yet, this is his happiest letter. And for us, that's kind of a paradox. How can you be joyful in prison? And and there is a, a good question to be asked there. For the Philippians, that wouldn't have been quite as confusing to them. When they received this letter from Paul, they knew something that we don't about what had been going on with Paul or between Paul and them. And what he clues us in here is that they had recently sent along a significant financial gift with one of the brothers named Epaphroditus, and he has hand-delivered this check, if you will, to Paul in prison, who's starving, who's alone, who doesn't have anything, and all of a sudden the church in Philippi writes this check. And we can tell by the context that it must have been a significant check. In verse 18, he goes, I have received full payment. I have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Okay, so it probably wasn't like 20 bucks or a Starbucks card. Like they, they hooked him up. A significant gift has come through. And Paul is now writing this letter to the church in Philippi as a response to that gift. And so we start to understand a little bit more about why he's so joyful and why he's so thankful and why he feels this warm-hearted connection with this community of people. Because they have just been incredibly generous and kind to him. And so now he's writing this letter in in response to that gift, okay? And so he starts the section by saying that he rejoices greatly in the Lord, that at last they have renewed their concern for him. Okay, so it's probably been 10 or 12 years at this point since Paul was with these people in Philippi. So it's been a long time. They haven't seen him. And, of course, they don't have any of the ways of communicating that we do today. They haven't been able to Facebook stalk him or follow his blog or anything like that. They get the occasional letter or the occasional messenger that would kind of keep them up to date on what Paul's been up to. But for the most part, it's been a long time, and they're pretty removed from him. And Paul rejoices 
that even though I haven't been with you for a while, even though you probably don't know all that I've been up to, you have renewed your concern. You haven't forgotten about me. And he says, and it's not that you, in second half of verse 10, it's not that you weren't concerned, but you just didn't have an opportunity to show it. It's, it's like, I, I know that you guys wanted to, to be generous and stay connected with me. It's just really hard when you don't know what I'm up to. And so he says, now I'm, I've received your gift. We've reconnected, and you are continuing to be generous, continuing to bless me just like you did back in the day. And so he's thankful. He rejoices greatly in the Lord. But then, starting in verse 11 and really through the rest of this chunk, Paul gets a little confusing, okay? And there's all kinds of theories among Bible scholars and commentators about why Paul starts dancing around so much with his language here. Because you would think if uh, he had just received this sizable, generous gift and he's now financially secure when he wasn't before, the appropriate response to the people who gave that gift would be what? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it. You've really made a difference in my life, and I am so grateful that you've given to me. But Paul kind of doesn't really ever say that. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, And he has this joyful tone throughout the the whole letter, but he kind of dances around. And he, like before he says anything that sounds too thankful, he sort of qualifies his language by going, hey, that's awesome. I'm, I'm rejoicing that you guys sent this gift. I didn't really need it. I was fine without it, but it's really cool that you gave. He does that twice. In the first paragraph and then in the second paragraph, he says, it's so cool that you guys gave. Just so you know, I didn't need you to do that. And if I got that thank you card, I'd be like, just say thank you, man. Like, you don't need to break all this down. Like, I know you're okay. I know you're secure in Christ. But Paul really dances here. And and I want to give you a couple reasons why I think Paul chooses his words so carefully. The first is that Paul is protecting himself from accusations that he's in the gospel business to make money off of people. Okay, so I know this is hard to believe, but there was a time when some people felt like churches were always asking for their money. <laughs> I know that's hard to imagine, but back then and obviously as well as today, some churches, some pastors or whatever have this reputation for all they care about is my money. All they want from me is my money, so they're constantly asking. And so that was the case back then as well with other religious leaders or philosophers that would travel around, set up camp and teach and preach, and then kind of expect to make bank out of it. And so when you're a pastor, just let me let you in on this. When you're a pastor, talking about money and giving and generosity is always awkward, okay? And the reason is because for me, as a pastor, as a teacher of the Bible, My job is to communicate out of God's word what God's heart and God's word is for us today. And so my job is to be as faithful as I can to the scriptures. And the scriptures are full of God's thoughts on money. Jesus is constantly talking about money, whether we like it or not. Like half of his parables have to do with money. 
And so as a pastor, we want to be faithful to communicate what God says about money. And we're up against this idea, this reputation that all we care about is getting your money. And so Paul's protecting himself from those accusations by saying, hey, I so appreciate your gift, but just so you know, that's not what I'm all about. I'm not in this business to make money. Here's the other insight, just personally. I've been a pastor since I was 18. Nobody gets into this business to get rich, okay? <laughs> if you, if you want to make money, you don't go into full-time Christian ministry. Now, I know there's jacked-up examples, right? If you watch TBN or reality TV, you'll get these stories of megachurch scandals or pastors with private jets or whatever. That does happen, and I don't want to say it doesn't. But that's not the norm. Ken and I and most of our friends aren't, like, secretly in this rich guy club and just, you know, mooching off the church. Like, that's not why we do this. And it, would, it doesn't work that way. Okay, so Paul's coming out and saying, I just want to establish this up front. I'm not here to make money off you guys. So he kind of dances with his language. The second reason Paul doesn't get too excited about the money is because he wants to remind them that true joy and contentment aren't found in money and stuff, but in Christ. And so Paul is continuing to teach, continuing to pastor these people. And in verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So in Paul's old life, actually before he started following Jesus, we get the impression that he did pretty well. He was pretty well off. He was a prestigious, successful, kind of wealthy member of the cultural elite. And his testimony is Jesus came and took it all away, wrecked his life. And now he finds himself sitting alone, hungry, in prison. And what he's communicating to the church in Philippi is, I'm actually okay either way. Being rich and well-fed, that's great. Being hungry and alone, that's okay too. Because Paul wasn't looking to material wealth, to earthly possessions, to any of the things that we tend to think are going to give us happiness, meaning, joy, and security, Paul knows that none of it can meet the deepest longings of our heart. He has learned the secret of being content, whether he's got a lot or whether he's got nothing. He's okay. And then in verse 13, we get to this famous bumper sticker verse, right? that I can do all this who gives me strength. One of the things I love about teaching through whole books of the Bible or whole passages is that some of these bumper sticker verses get a context. All of a sudden we realize that that verse was actually written by somebody to someone else in a particular setting and it meant something to those people. And so this is one of those verses that kind of gets taken out of context and used all the time. I actually saw an ultimate fighter that had Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his chest as he's stepping into the octagon to beat the snot out of some meathead. I can do this through Christ who gives me strength, right? <laughs> like athletes and stuff, we love this verse because we can climb that hill, we can finish that race, we can win that game because Jesus is with us. I don't know if that's quite what Paul had in mind <laughs> when he wrote this. In fact, he seems to be saying something almost completely opposite. 
Not that Jesus is going to give you everything you need to be successful and healthy and happy and rich. But that Jesus is going to be your strength and joy and contentment when you lose the match. When your life falls apart. When your bank account is empty. When your health fails you. When things don't go the way you want them to to go. Paul's saying, Christ is your strength. You see the difference? Now, you can still get the tattoo if you want, but now you know it doesn't mean a good luck charm. It means God is with you, no matter what happens. And so Paul wants so desperately to communicate to these people that, hey, the gift is great, the money is great, the financial security, it's awesome. But true contentment and life and joy can only be found in Christ. So he doesn't say, hey, I was super depressed. I'm going to off myself in prison. But now that I'm financially secure, I'm okay. That's not the gospel, is it? Financial security doesn't guarantee joy and contentment. Paul says, it's in Christ alone that I find my strength. So thanks for the gift. It's kind of just the gravy, right? I already had a steak. You added a little gravy. That's great. The third reason that I think Paul uses this qualifying language instead of thank you is there in verse 14, where he says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. And this is a big one. Paul wants to emphasize that the beauty of this situation, of a community of Christians that are exercising or practicing generosity to a brother in need, He's saying, what makes that so good? It's not that it's so good that I received this. It's so good that you gave it. And I, th- I believe Paul genuinely believes that. He's more excited about the fact that they gave generously than the fact that he was the recipient of that gift. You know what I mean? And so Paul's a pastor. He's most concerned that the people who are under his care are being formed into the image and likeness of Christ. That's more important to him than funding his ministry and definitely more important than his personal comfort. What's most important is that the life of Jesus is emerging and becoming more and more visible in these people all the time. And so for Paul to see a community of people who he had had the privilege of preaching the gospel to and inviting into the kingdom, to see them now, 10 or 12 years later, flourishing in the gospel, meaning that their faith in Jesus had trickled from their head to their heart where they no longer just professed, here's the things we believe about Jesus and that's what makes us Christian, but they're actually beginning to practice the life of Christ. And for Paul, this thing called generosity is very close to the top of the list. For him, it's it's evidence that the Spirit is working deeply and forming the heart and mind of Christ in these people. And so he's rejoicing, not because he's got hooked up and now he can buy a jet ski or whatever it is. He's rejoicing to say how stoked he is for their progress in the gospel. 
that they're becoming an authentic community of Christ followers, that they're beginning to practice what they preach in a sense, that they're beginning to live a life of faithful and sacrificial and joyful generosity. And Paul, as their pastor, goes, yes, I love it. I love to see Jesus changing your heart, changing your mind, causing you to become a generous people. Like, that's what Paul's given his life to. That's why he's in prison, because he's so committed to that mission. And now we get why Philippians is his happiest letter. Not because he got hooked up, but because he's getting to see the fruit of his labor. Christ is being formed in these people that he loves and cares for so deeply. In verse 17, he again emphasizes this point. You guys gave faithfully, nobody else gave, only you. But then he goes, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. It's not good that I, the good thing about this isn't that I received it. The good thing is that you gave. I planted a church in Corvallis when I was 26 years old. Don't ever do that, okay? God told me to, so I had to. Um, I did not know what I was doing. And uh, in some ways, it was a really beautiful thing of just being in a place of complete desperation for God's wisdom and the Spirit's power because I didn't have much to offer. But um, we received outside funding for the first three years of our church. So we had several foundations, grants, other churches that threw in and filled our bank account so that we could just go about doing the mission God gave us in that city. And so literally for the first three years, we did not worry about finances at all. We had all the money we needed in the bank. We lived really lean, and we were just really interested in in following Jesus and doing what he called us to do. And about a year or so into it, one of my mentors, it's actually Luke, who Ken, Ken mentioned a moment ago, a guy that's mentored both Ken and I over the years, was kind of asking, how's, how's it going? And um, he asked me specifically, how's giving at your church? And I said, man, it's amazing. Like, we've, we're in the black every month. We, we can pay all, all our bills, pay all our staff, pay our rent. Like, we're fine. We don't even have to worry about it or think about it or talk about it at all. So we're going, doing good. And Luke goes, no, that's not what I'm asking. How are your people doing at giving? I said, oh, shoot, that's a really different question, isn't it? And Luke was saying the same thing as Paul is here. The most important thing isn't that your check account looks good and that you end in the black every month as a church. The most important thing is that we, as the church, are growing and excelling in a practice of generosity. And I had to rethink everything I knew about church finances at that point. Because I thought, hey, if all the bills are paid, then we're okay. But even more important to Paul is, are you becoming a generous person? Are we becoming a generous community? The reason this is so important is because it actually 
butts up against some of the assumptions that we're prone to hold when it comes to our thinking about God and church and money and stuff like that. Because if the foundation of this conversation is not that God needs your money, but rather that you need to give, that's a very different trajectory, isn't it? Some of us have a picture of God like he's super needy. Like he's up there going, man, I wish you guys would just give a little bit more because there's all this stuff I want to do in the world, but I'm kind of just paralyzed because I'm bankrupt and can't do anything about it, right? Like if that were the case, then we would be God. And he would be asking us for money to help him out. That's not the picture. That's not the story at all, is it? Like, the Bible's pretty clear from the beginning that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is not poor or needy. God's the creator and the owner of it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What does that include? Pretty much everything. It's all his. He's not going, oh man, I wish those people would just be a little more generous. Then I could, you know, then those people in Africa could hear or whatever he's going. No, that's not the picture. We're not God. He's God. And so Paul is building this, this foundation. He's operating from this foundation for an understanding of Christian generosity that starts with Jesus' words, that it's actually more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says it's good for you to give. It's not so much that I got it. It's good for you to give. I want to propose four sh- three shifts in the way that we would think about God and money. The first shift is this. Many of us have the mentality that my money and stuff belong to me. And so generosity is giving some of my money and stuff to others. Most of us wouldn't actually ever say that at any point. But that's how we operate. That every time I write a check and drop it in the offering bucket, or every time I give online to some nonprofit or charity overseas, or every time I buy a homeless guy a burger, I'm taking something that's mine and I'm being generous by giving it away. And that's not how Paul thinks about this, is it? It's not how the Bible talks about generosity. Rather, the shift is from my money and stuff belong to me, I give some of it to God and others, to this. All my money and stuff already belong to God. So I get to listen to him and ask what he wants me to do with what he's given me. That's a different approach, isn't it? All I have is his. Whether I have a lot of money or a little money, a big house or no house, everything I have belongs to him. And he's entrusted it to me as an invitation to be part of what he's doing in the world. And so I get to creatively and prayerfully seek him and ask, God, how do you want me to use what you've entrusted to me for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory? 
So I'm not taking some of my stuff and giving it away, but I'm receiving all of life as grace from God and asking, God, what do you want me to do with this? How can I glorify your name? How can I help advance your kingdom? That's really different than how a lot of us think about giving. I don't know about you. Some of us probably feel like when we give to the church, it's like our God tax, right? We just have to lay down that 10% out of duty or obligation, mostly out of guilt. I give so I don't have to feel guilty about not giving, right? And it's like something I'm supposed to do or, or whatever, and that's, that's not how Paul talks about this at all. And the truth is, we uh, have a long ways to go. Americans in general, the latest study I saw, Americans in general give 2.2% of their income. 2.2%. Pretty bad, right? Guess how much American Christians give? A whopping 2.8%. So we're beating them, but not by much. Nothing to be too proud about, right? And for Paul, he's going, that number can't be right. Like, as followers of Jesus who understand ourselves as the recipients of grace from a generous God, that our entire life and identity is a gift that we haven't earned our salvation or right standing with God, but it's been given to us graciously and generously by a loving Father, how can we then become a community that's virtually indistinguishable from the world in terms of our generosity? It's going something, I would say something has cut off the flow of grace to our hearts. If we truly saw ourselves as recipients of God's grace and generosity, then we, just like the church in Philippi, would be transformed into a generous people. And we would no longer think of my money and stuff are mine, and I may share some of it with God and others. But we would say, all of life is grace. Every day. Every dollar, every moment that's in my possession is a gift from God. It's been given to me. And how would we not be generous with it? And the reason I think we fall into this is what we've talked about before, the myth of scarcity. We buy into the lie or to the belief that there's not enough for everybody so I need to get as much as I can for myself. Gandhi famously says, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed, right? So it's just kind of ridiculous when you look at what's happening in the world and you see half the planet is starving from not enough to eat and dying, and the other half is trying to lose weight. Something's pretty jacked up there. It's a myth of scarcity. I need more to feel secure and comfortable and okay. And so for most of us, I'd argue the reason we probably don't give generously to the church, to the kingdom, to the poor, is from this place of fear that if I give, I'm not going to have enough for myself. I'm not going to be okay. But if we trust that our Father will take care of us, 
we'll be freed up to live generously. And not so much that kind of weird hocus-pocus voodoo you see on TBN where, hey, if you give this gift, we'll send you this weird handkerchief, which means you're going to be a millionaire by the end of the month. We're not talking about voodoo. Like if you do this for God, God will do this for you. We're saying God has already been gracious to you. God has already been generous. God has already poured out his life into you. And so we're not giving to manipulate God so he'll hook us up in the future. We're giving out of gratitude and joy for what he has already done in the past. In verse 19, Paul gets to the foundation of how he thinks about God and money. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So we move from the myth of scarcity to the liturgy of abundance. Randy Alcorn, who writes a lot on this topic, says it's possible to give without having a deep understanding of grace. But it's impossible to have a deep understanding of grace and not give. Just like thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. If God's grace is lightning, our giving is thunder. Isn't that killer? If we are the recipients of God's grace and generosity, if we have been adopted into the family of the creator and owner of the universe, then it completely changes the way that we think about the money and the stuff that we have. Our generosity becomes a byproduct of God's grace. That's the first shift. The second is this, and I'll move quickly. Many people have this mentality, that I have a finite amount of resources with which to live my life. And the shift that Paul would encourage is God has an infinite number of resources, and he's generously shared them with me and invited me to be part of his mission in the world. So again, not controlled by fear or scarcity, but a vision of God's generosity, bigness, and goodness. So Paul's been all over the world, the known world at this time, planting churches, raising up leaders, establishing elders, and then moving on. And Paul says here repeatedly that the church in Philippi is the only church that's been supporting him. And Again, we're assuming this is a significant and sizable gift. He's amply supplied. He has everything he needs. And so one conclusion we might draw is that, well, the church in Philippi must be pretty well off. This must have been a wealthy community of Christians if they were the ones, the only ones, that were supporting Paul. Flip with me real quick, two or three books to the left, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we get a little bit more information about the church in Philippi. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Philippi is the primary church in the, in the area of Macedonia. In the, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's not how I would guess the math works. Overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals 
Rich generosity. So apparently money and stuff don't equal joy. For verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So Paul here is talking about this same church in Philippi and saying their giving was beyond the bare minimum. They weren't giving out of duty or guilt or obligation or just paying their God tax. But he starts the whole thing by saying here's how the grace of God has transformed the church in Philippi. They receive grace from God, and now they become, they now become agents of grace and generosity in the world. And the picture is like they gave all they could, and they wanted to give more. In Acts 4, we get the same kind of story, an early community of Christians that gave all they could, and they wanted to give more, so they got creative and found ways to make more money so they could invest more into the kingdom. They started selling houses and selling property, going, how can we generate more income so that we can give more? Like, that's crazy talk, right? Nobody, nobody lives that way. Nobody thinks that way. Only a community who sees all of life as a gift from God. And so this church isn't giving so generously because they're so rich. They're actually giving even though they're incredibly poor by worldly standards. They're tapping in to the generosity of the God who owns it all. And the final shift is this. From I generously give when a legitimate need is presented to me to in response to the grace of God, I proactively look for ways to be generous. Okay, so what Paul's so impressed about with the Philippians is that 10 or 12 years later, they continue to give. So what happens every time there's a major natural disaster somewhere in the world? The nations unite in support, sending aid, sending volunteers, sending medical help. Everybody rallies around it. It's on all the news cycles for a couple days. And then we forget about it. So it's been just over a month now since the earthquakes in Nepal, right? And for a few days, everybody was talking about it. There were all these opportunities to donate to Red Cross or whoever. And I was just reading an article how it's almost all completely stopped. No more volunteers, no more aid. Like we jump on board for a few moments and then it's on to the next thing. And that would have been really easy for the church in Philippi to do with Paul. Like, it's been 10 or 12 years. He's not on their radar. And it's not like the sexy, you know, social justice opportunity of the moment. When Paul's no longer blowing up their Twitter feed with a need, they're kind of like, well, you know, it's easy to forget about. But that's not what happens. They continue to be faithful and intentional and generous for the long haul. So here's a quick test how you can know whether you're giving out of guilt or out of gratitude. If your giving is primarily spontaneous and reactive, meaning somebody presents you with an immediate need, an immediate opportunity, an emotionally compelling picture of a starving kid or whatever, and you give to that, it's a good sign that you're not giving out of gratitude. If your giving 
is intentional and proactive. That's a sign that God has actually changed your heart to where you now believe what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. You've discovered the grace of God and it's melting you and it's changing the way that you think about your stuff and your money. And so you're not buying into the myth of scarcity that I need to accumulate and keep and hoard as much as I can for myself, but I love giving. I love being generous. I love listening to God and and carefully planning out and coming up with, with a way to be as generous as I possibly can. And so for many of us, that looks like faithfully and generously and sacrificially giving to support the ministry of Antioch every month. And it's not quite as cool or exciting as, you know, what, some of the other stuff you think you could give to, not that it's either or, but that faithful, discipled, gracious, sacrificial gift every month is actually a sign that the grace of God has gotten root of your heart. So, here's the picture. Um, Some of us give generously and sacrificially as a way of life. Some of us don't. We could, but we don't. And some of you, some of us, are in a place where we love that idea of being able to be generous, but for whatever reason, life stage, circumstances, you're not able to. What I would simply say to you is when the grace of God takes root in your heart, you're going to find yourself desiring to give more and more and more. Desiring to give more strategically, more intentionally, more proactively. For Jen and I, we've had months on both ends of the spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, as a pastor, I'm supported by the church to live out my calling. I don't see myself as somebody who has a job. I have a calling that the church supports me to do full-time so I don't have to get a job, okay? There have been months where the church that I was serving wasn't able to pay me. And I've had to learn to say with Paul, I'm content. If I sat down for a beer with Paul, I'd say, but dude, you don't have kids. (laughs) You don't have a wife. And I'm sure you'd have something smart and spiritual to say. But, <laughs> right? So on one end, you understand that there's a legitimate need. On the other end, Jen and I also give faithfully and generously to the church and other places as well. And there's been months where we aren't able to. Medical crisis, whatever it is, something comes up. And we can't give. And it bums us out. Because we love to be able to give. Right? So I'm not going to talk about a bunch of rules and numbers and percentages and here's what you have to do. The point is, is God changing our heart and allowing us to see our stuff and our money through a whole new lens. Because at the bottom line of all of this, God himself is the ultimate giver. Sometimes we think God's a taker who's asking for more of us, more of our time, more of our money. God's the ultimate giver. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. 
God has given generously and sacrificially of himself so that we might be included in his life and in his mission. The gift of his son, he, what more could he have given to show us how much he loves us? And if that's the God that we worship, if that's the God whose image we're made in and being conformed to in Christ, if that's the God we profess, then how could we not be a generous people? So here's my quick ask. If you aren't currently giving to the work God is doing to, in this church, then I want to encourage you to start. If you are giving, I want to encourage you to give more. And if you aren't able to give, I want to encourage you to pray and seek God so that you will eventually be able to get to a place where you can give generously to his work here at Antioch and to whatever other awesome, cool, creative places that he leads you into. Sound good?